We are back with you on this wonderful Wednesday. My name is Joey Alberti, and this is the Collegiate Sports Podcast. We got another winter sports medley coming your way. We got hockey to start. UMass men's hockey is coming off of a 1-1 series split against the UConn Huskies this past weekend. So I'll talk to Colin about what kind of needs to happen for them to have success in the postseason. And then we're going to get into some hoops. UMass women's basketball coming off of a tough loss to one of the bottom tier Atlantic 10 teams in Davidson, a 76-67 loss. And now the men's team coming off a LaSalle win, which is fine, nothing, nothing too special, but they have a tough week ahead of them with Dayton on Wednesday, tonight at 7 p.m., and then they have VCU this Saturday, two of the upper-tier teams in the Atlantic 10. Likely they'll go 0-2, but you you never know. But we'll start with hockey. Colin McCarthy here in studio. How are you? I am fantastic. You know, UMass men's basketball did beat Rutgers, and Rutgers is incredible, so you <laughs> that, never know. <laughs> beating Rutgers and Penn State this season is their claim to fame. Those... Those looked like good wins at the time, but now that Rutgers win looks good, which is very in- that's that's very impressive for a team that has not had many good wins um, the past couple of years. Incredible. I guess I am on here to talk hockey though, so we should probably do that. <laughs> <laughs> so after this one-one series split, where UMass did look really good, they outshot UConn in their loss, thirty-seven to seventeen, but pucks just weren't flying in the net. Do you think that game? was just one of those games that kind of luck of the draw in terms of um, their shots going in and UMass is not? Or do you think there's a little more to be said maybe about Matt Murray or just anything around the offense? What are you, what are you thinking? I'm thinking combination of luck of the draw and a little bit Matt Murray. Uh, obviously, Darian Hansen, UConn's goalie, made some incredible saves on Saturday. And UMass was throwing everything it had at that kid, and he stood so tall in the net. He had he had me saying "Wow" in the booth. I think like eight or nine times, uh, just like especially in the five on three in the first period, that yeah. UMass got some quality shots, and he was not letting them have it. Uh, I definitely think it it was as impressive as a team can look in a loss. I think. Uh, not that that really means anything. I know Coach Carvel isn't into moral victories, but they did look very good. They looked like a team who deserved to win. Uh, Matt Murray was cause for a little bit of concern because, like you said, UConn 17 shots on goal. I think Murray let in four of them uh, on those, which is a it is a tough a tough draw. Especially there were there were one or two weak ones that he definitely should have had. Uh, something that I that I have talked about is Murray hasn't needed to play every single game in a season the way that he's basically played every single game this season so it's sort of interesting to see uh these past few weeks there's been a little bit of a a little bit of a stumbling and I mean he's gonna have to work through it because he is still the only option like they're not going to Luke Pavisic as good as he has looked when he's been in the net uh when it comes down to the postseason Matt Murray's gonna be in every single game uh win or lose so it's going to be interesting to see how he rebounds. I think this Vermont series coming up will be a big a big chance for him to rebound and, and get back on his, his feet a little bit here. The fatigue factor is really interesting to me because I think in your article you said that he has either one less game than his career high or one more game than his career high. Yeah, he's got one more than his career high, and in his last two seasons 
He only played 34 total games. Right now he's at 28 with four regular season games left, plus Hockey East and NCAAs. Like, he's going to play more games this year than he has in the last two combined, probably, uh, which is it's pretty insane to think about. And obviously COVID had a hand in some of that, but yep. – uh, still, you you gotta wonder if like that workload is it, it's tough to manage. I think. Yeah, no, I can't imagine having to just jump up like that, and especially at this point of the season where it is so critical to be at your best. Especially, you want that hot goaltender, and if Matt Murray is not that, then I don't think UMass is gonna last long in the Hockey East and the 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 tournament, the big one, the big tournament. But the penalty kill was something that. Carvel addressed well both special teams but we'll get to penalty kill first they've allowed six of their past 12 and I think that was against Maine and Yukon um and I think before that they allowed like only 13 percent of their opponent's power plays to be successful what do you think has gone wrong in those penalty kills for them to just be that that off yeah it's that's such a weird thing to think about because especially last year, I think they finished the year at like 92% on the penalty kill, which is an insane stat. And obviously that's like not necessarily the expectation every year, but seeing them stumble like this has been a little weird. You would think that if either special team was going to be not as good, it would be the power play uh, because the defense has been the hallmark of UMass mm. for like five years. Uh, their penalty kill always seems to be great. Uh, I'm I'm trying to figure out what it is that's gone wrong specifically with the penalty kill. I think maybe it comes down a little bit to the D being a little bit aggressive, uh, maybe getting caught uh, in the neutral zone a little bit too much. But on the penalty kill, they definitely seem to be more passive. And it also may be a case of just every team that is playing them this year is coming at them with just that much extra, just that much more preparation, just that much more... Mm energy and focus because they're playing the national champions at yeah. the end of the day whatever umass is ranking is i think it's still 10 right now uh they're playing the reigning national champions and teams are still like looking at that like it's still something that you're thinking about they want to play their best against umass and i think that's gone into a little bit too uh, i think murray needs to be a little bit better on the penalty kill in terms of uh umass will always like try to let the team take like the worst shot basically that they could get like they're not going to try and let them get anything in tight on the penalty kill they're going to let them take shots from the perimeter I think one or two of those have gone in recently uh, but it's just overall been a, a little bit down still uh, pretty good but recently especially like you said in these past these past two series these past four games it's been uh, a, a bit of a cause of concern that it hasn't been in a long time so Whatever it is that they they need to do to that, I'm sure they'll make some adjustments this week in practice. But it's been uh, it's been interesting to see, to say the least. Then the power play, I kind of forget the statistics on that one, but I think they were 0-5 on Saturday. I know that one against UConn, and that that proved to be huge because I think UConn was two of five, and then just going 0-5 on the power plays, especially that five on three that they had for, I think about a minute. Um, was unsuccessful. Do you think that somewhat stems from the lack of production from those lower lines of not being able to produce? And Carr was talking about how the, the he's been really heavily reliant on those first and second lines, and he really just has not gotten that production that he needs out of the third and fourth line. Yeah, it, it definitely plays a factor. That top power play unit is really good. Uh, the best that I've seen 
UMass have, uh, maybe outside of Kale, uh, you got to give Kale an outlier because just him being on a power play is special to watch. Uh, but that unit, the top unit, is really, really good, but they can't be out there for the full two-minute power play. And especially this second half of the season, I haven't seen, even from the second power play unit, which is basically UMass's second line, plus Kessel and Bollinger, I haven't seen very much from them either, really, uh, by way of power play production. It's been really heavily reliant on Waite, Trevino, and Lapina uh, to score those extra man opportunities. And I think that that's why you're seeing that overall the power play's down a little bit because if Trevino's line doesn't score on the power play, they're not scoring on the power play, basically. Right now is where it's at. Uh, I can't remember the last time Reed Lebster or Cal Keefuk had a power play goal. Uh, I know they had some early in the season. It looked like they had two lines firing consistently, but now it's it's very much become a one-line show. And then uh, in terms of like the overall offensive production, like they're not getting anything recently from the third or fourth line. They didn't even play the fourth line on Saturday, hardly at all. I think they took three shifts or less maybe uh, because they're not getting enough production. And that is also concerning because like early in the year, this looked like it could have been the deepest UMass team in a long time. When they had five forwards injured and they were still winning games or finding ways not to lose games, even with Wattenbach and Mercury being on the top line, uh, you kind of felt that when they got healthy, it was going to be such a deep lineup because they like, they were forced to play so many guys. Uh, but now the, the production is falling off really in the bottom six, and uh, that's, that's not something that I expected at all, and I think it does bleed into the power play like you were saying. Hmm. In UMass's... Last six games against Hockey East opponents, which includes Providence, UMass, Lowell, Maine, and UConn, they're three and three. And I don't, I genuinely don't remember if we talked about this on the last one. Did we talk about the the hot run that the Minutemen went on last year and how they they kind of picked up at the right time and all kind of came together at the right time? Whereas this season that hasn't been the case. Where they went on like a. a a crazy long unbeaten streak at at one point later in the season last year, and they're just not doing that right now. Yeah, um, yeah, I don't think we talked about it that much, but they UMass last year, for those that remember, was absolutely dominant uh, in the month of February and beyond. Like February to April was like a dominant stretch. As soon as they got off that COVID pause, uh, I I remember talking on the podcast like after that and being like the expectations are or I think Noah was technically on the podcast but we were all talking about how the expectations were when they came off that pause they were probably going to lose to Providence because Providence was a great team and they played them really close the first two times and then they blew them out of the water and then they went and like three or four days later I think like just beat BC and looked really good doing it and that started like a massive run all the way to the tournament. And then I think in the NCAA tournament, they outscored opponents 17-4. to And that's against the top, like the best of the best of college hockey. They outscored them 17-4 to in four games. They were un- unbeatable. And to start this year, they sort of kept up with that pace. I think they had, it was a crazy long uh, unbeaten streak or, or like a point streak that they went on. I think it was like, Eight, I want to say it was 18 games, but I'm not remembering. I'm not remembering fully. But it was a lot of a lot of time where they weren't losing, even with their lineup. Uh, and now it seems like they're they're getting some more inconsistent play, and they really have to get hot at the right time. And and a lot of that is like hot goaltending, hot uh, like the depth, the things that we've already mentioned. Uh, having good goaltending and good depth down the stretch is like the two main things 
that helps you win playoff games and helps you win national championships. And those two things are, are kind of lacking right now. Yeah, UMass ended the season in their national championship winning season. They finished off the regular season 11-2-3. and And like you said, they had that win over BC when they were number one in the country, and then that 8-1 win over Providence. And then after that, they didn't lose, obviously, in the Hockey East or the the national championship and whatever all that all that fun stuff but I think that's that's all we got for now Colin as always appreciate the time and we'll probably be talking at some point next week just to get a better look at where the hockey east is because you know it's 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 a little wild right now as as we both know I think seven teams are within seven points of each other basically there's it's it's wide open to say the to to make it simple but also just previewing BC, obviously they're not the team that they were last year or in years past as they're one of the bottom teams, but still a, still an intense rivalry for UMass every year. We are back with the world-famous Lulu Kessen. How are you on this fine Tuesday, but it's going to be um, published on Wednesday? You know, I'm okay. It's rainy. Today's Tuesday, but it's a Monday schedule with classes, so everything seems really wonky. So, you know, I'm a little thrown, but happy to be back in the podcasting seat with you, Joey. Happy to hear. Yeah, I'm a little thrown, too, just because now I have the same class from 9 to 11 a.m., two days in a row, which is a little brutal, but we get through it in the end. Um, But we're here to talk women's basketball. They had a very interesting last two games. They had a 13-point comeback win against Fordham last Wednesday. Fordham, I think, is now ranked fifth in the A-10, so that is a very quality win. And then they, they go on to lose to Davidson, who is more near that, that middle to lower end tier of the Atlantic 10 in the standings. Um, I think they're 12-14 and 14 overall. But the key thing that I picked up on from both of the one of the key things, there's two key things, but the one key thing, the first key thing, is UMass getting outscored pretty badly in the first quarter. In the win against Fordham, Fordham outscored them 22 to 10. In the loss to Davidson, the men and women were outscored 20 to 9. Why why such slow first quarters? Like what has Verdi said about the slow starts of these first quarters? Honestly, I can't remember a time that UMass had a strong start this season. Um slow first quarters are a common theme and Verdi definitely talks about it after games talks about how they didn't come out with any want to with any energy like he's highly critical of the way that they start the first quarter but at the same time as a coach he has to be a real realistic about the way his team finishes the fourth quarter so you know UMass has been able to kind of sneak their way out of games where they've really started poorly but their losses it's just proved that they can't do that every single game The Davidson game um, was unique in the sense that UMass caught up and I think made it as little as three-point difference, I want to say. They they climbed their way back. Um, However, they never regained the lead. Davidson refused to let UMass back in the game, refused to even let UMass have a second-half lead. Teams like Fordham, teams like pretty much everyone else UMass has won (laughs) against this year— even letting UMass go ahead by one free throw 
puts them in a position to step on the gas and win by the margins that they do ultimately by the end of the fourth quarter. Davidson refused to do that. They played all 40 minutes, yes. They had great shooting, yes. But in reality, you saw a team that re- that knew UMass's rhythm and pattern came from you know, a slow start, but finding a way to grind it out in the end. And Davidson wasn't going to be the one that was going to kind of let their hands fly in the air and say, okay, they got this one, they came back. Like a lot of teams have this season against UMass. Hmm. My other big thing, in the first game of those two against Fordham, UMass was, oh, sorry, yes, they were 4 of 16 from 3 for 25%. And in the second game that happened this past Sunday, they were 2 of 18 from beyond the arc. I'm not saying they're this crazy good like perimeter team, but a person who is a crazy good three-point shooter is Sydney Taylor. And in those four, in those two games, she is one of nine from three, um, and she she's coming off of a five-game stretch where she's averaged fifteen and a half points. To then combine in these two games for thirteen points. What is this? Is this just a, a shooting slump, or is there anything more to it? You know, I think the whole thing this year with Sydney Taylor has been consistency. She said it, Verdi said it, um, but in reality, I feel like as of recent. Uh, you've kind of seen her be a little bit more affected by her poor shooting than before. Uh, She'll keep attacking. She doesn't stop. You know, she doesn't become just a passer. Um, And she didn't in the last two games where she wasn't shooting well. However, um, you could kind of tell that something was off. Uh, Kendall Hermia, I think, or Hermia, excuse me, just shot the lights out from beyond beyond the arc uh, against Fordham. And it was Sydney's player, if I do remember correctly. And it was interesting to kind of see um, at first. It took a while for Sydney to put a hand in her face. And you could kind of see her defense affected by her offense, which is something that you didn't see in the beginning of the year, even when she wasn't shooting well. So I think it's a bit of a shooting slump, but I think it's also a little bit of a mental slump in the sense that she's recognizing that her shooting isn't going her way. And, you know, we've seen her do other things and it's not like she hasn't stopped attacking the hoop, but it's almost seems to like have a visible effect on her body language uh, more than normal. Hmm. And I'm, I'm looking at these statistics at like right now, as we're talking and just going back to the men and women's losses and Sydney Taylor's output in terms of scoring. She had eight in the Davidson loss. I think the last loss before that was Rhode Island. She had five. Dayton, she had two. Rhode Island again, she had six. Um, let's see, Boston College, ten. Iowa State, two. I don't know how many more losses are on the schedule, if there is even any more. They haven't really lost that much. I think that might be it in terms of six. She she scored in double digits once in those six losses. I think if the middle women want to really make an impact and win the Atlantic 10 and then go on to the tournament, Sydney Taylor, Sam Breen's an inevitability. She is always producing numbers. I think she had 26 against Davidson and then another like 19 against Fordham or whatever it is. But Sydney Taylor needs to needs to help her out and do what she has been able to do for parts of the season. Oh, absolutely. I think right now is an incredibly crucial time. Um, I think getting her rhythm back before the Atlantic 10 tournament is huge. Um, and I just think, like Verdi said after the Davidson loss, 
we can't shoot two for 18 from the three-point line. I think he said that in response to my question like nine times in a row. It was, <laughs> it was very clear Torrey Verde did not think his team could shoot two for 19 from or two for 18 from the three-point line. And I kind of thought to myself, like, how much can you control it? Like, in reality, like, do even like even the best shooters can have shots that look perfect and they just don't go in like everything goes right except the ball just falling into the net it can rim out there's so many things that you kind of can't control about three-point success so part of me worries that the dependency on that and kind of the like okay we we can't be poor from uh downtown will almost have negative like reversed effects on UMass in the sense that if they start off not shooting well that it'll be like oh my god this is it like we can't Mm -hmm. win a game if we don't shoot well um and with Sid doing poorly and Sid's specialty being from the three-point line I think it's kind of like okay what can we do when we're not shooting well not we can't shoot well yeah that's a very interesting point and I think they had one game where where she did not shoot great. I think she had seven points against UMass Lowell, and they won 58-53 to way back in the beginning of December. But other than that, I mean, in her win, in, like, in their win, she's been, like, excellent in putting up from anywhere from, like, 16 to 26 points or whatever it may be. But I want to talk about this VCU game that's coming up um, the day that this podcast comes out, actually. They already defeated the Rams 72-60 in the last time out they saw them in last year's Atlantic 10 championship as well what did you take away from the VCU win for the minute women earlier in the year um, that you think would be able to kind of relate to this matchup right before the postseason begins so I think if I remember correctly right after the VCU win I wrote the story about or right around then was when I wrote the story about like don't pretend that this minute woman's success is new because I think a lot of people thought that the VCU win was like groundbreaking and I talked to Verdi before the game kind of about you know is there not necessarily any bad blood but like what's it like going against the team for the first time that that beat you in the Atlantic 10 championship and he was kind of like yep we remember it but it's a new season it's a new game it wasn't so much of dragging last year into this one so I think that kind of like gave UMass an extra boost in a sense um, an extra sense of want to just remembering and going back to to VCU's court and remembering kind of what what was done the last time that they that they saw them but VCU just took down Dayton they just gave Dayton their first Atlantic 10 loss, um, and VCU's record may surprise people. They may wonder how they were the ones to to give Dayton that loss, but VCU is a really talented team, and they always play a really hard game against UMass, um, and UMass beat them on their home court uh, earlier this year, so I think it'll be interesting what they come down to do uh, in, in Amherst. Uh, I guess tonight, <laughs> if, <laughs> if you're listening to the podcast Wednesday morning, uh, but I think it's going to be a hard game regardless, a really important timed one, um, having it be UMass's last home game. So I think UMass, I don't even know how to say they can't have a slow start because, you know, the Fordham game was probably one of the coolest games that they've, they've had in terms of just pure hard-fought basketball, um, and they came down from behind. So. Mm. I think UMass just needs to understand the importance of these games uh, 
especially because I think they understood the importance of Fordham's game, but that they just did too much is what Verdi said. He was like, Fordham in the first half was like, you just, you wanted something so bad that you were doing things wrong. And I think UMass needs to want something so bad tomorrow night or tonight, uh, but do things really well from the start to not let VCU think that they, that they have a shot of evening out the series between the two. Hmm. As you alluded to VCU is currently the hottest team in the Atlantic 10 six game win streak they beat Dayton uh the only other really notable opponent was LaSalle who's sixth um in the conference right now but VCU is number three right now in conference standings at nine and three right in front of UMass who's number four at eight and four so it is a very big matchup for the men and women their second last game of the season um other than St. Louis so I think it'll be a very big indicator to see how this team fares against the best of the best that the A-10 has to offer. But Lulu, thank you again for another fantastic podcast. And we'll probably catch up after the St. Louis game to talk about first round of the Atlantic 10 tournament, your trip down to Delaware, and so much more. So thank you as always. Hell yeah. Thank you, Joey. So I only want to get into a few things for the men's team, basketball that is, because I think there's only they don't they don't need a ton of time. And I want to start with the outlook of the season. They have five games, all five. I say they win one, maybe. They have Dayton on the road, that's a loss. VCU at home, that's a loss. Fordham on the road, probably a loss. Fordham at home, I think that's a win. George Mason on the road. That's a loss. I think extremely optimistic. You could say three wins. If they find a way to beat VCU at home or Fordham twice and then maybe George Mason. But I feel like it's it's more likely than not that they come out of this one and four. And <laughs> they were the only team in the Atlantic 10 so far this year to lose to Duquesne. And they lost to Duquesne at the, at the Mullen Center 78-74. I think that says a lot about the <laughs> I think that says a lot about this team. They are number 3 in terms of offensive production, averaging 75 and a half points a game, but they are 14th out of 14 in points allowed per game at 77 and a half. I mean, they they just dig themselves into a a very very, very deep hole with the way they play defense. They allowed 73 points last year. They weren't they were 12th in defense last season. If they allowed 73 points last season, they'd be probably a few places higher in the standings than they are this year. And they were also the highest scoring offense last year. So there's just something they need they need defensive players. I think they they very much miss Debaji Walker who's out with a with an injury for the rest of the year. But they need defensive-minded players. They have a lot of guys that can shoot, as we as we all know. Whatever. But I want to get into the change. Noah is the person it starts with because he's been the leader of this team and the best player for this team for most of the season. As we all know, he had a concussion. He's come back. In the URI game, he had 11 points. He didn't take a ton. Of, he took 11 shots. Seven assists. Solid output. Since then, he's had a 14-12 and 12 game against St. Bonnie's, a 10-9 and 9 game against St. Joe's. 
but he's been shooting less than 25% from the field. He still averages over 40% from the field, even before, even after those those games kind of get put into the rest of the stats. He had a 12.5% um, field goal shooting night on the day that he got hurt in that second game against St. Louis. 9% against George Washington, 28% against St. Joe's, 31% against St. Bonnie's, 25% against LaSalle. Other than that, he hasn't shot less than 33%. So it's all been recent. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's just a thing where you really don't know. He is such a high-level scorer, and we've seen that this entire season. If he can kind of get it clicking, then that that needs so that needs to change. That's the first thing that needs to change. And the second thing, UMass has a top five shooter in the country in Rich Kelly. He shoots forty nine point two percent threes. He only shoots five threes a game. Why is Rich Kelly, who is so good at shooting threes, the best shooter that this team has had in a while, only shooting five threes a game? He's had one game where he shot more, or double digits, I should say. And that was against Northeastern, and he had his season high 25. And I get that he sometimes will get covered pretty heavily by defenses, especially when Noah wasn't in. But Noah's back. Why doesn't McCall make 8 or 10 plays a game where he just tries to get rich and open look? And it can be from literally 7 feet behind the 3-point line. It does not matter for this man. And I think Pedro Pedro made the point on the last podcast. He's being underutilized. I think Rich isn't as pure of a scorer as Noah may be, but I think if Noah gets back to that pure scoring ability and Rich shoots 10 threes a game, he just shoots 10 threes a game because I don't understand why he wouldn't. He's too good of a shooter and this team isn't doing well. And I get it, offense really isn't the biggest problem, but I think that would help their chances a lot. Defensively, I I think it's a personnel issue where they just don't... I mean, you're starting two guys under six feet at guard, um, and if they're not putting crazy production, like high teens, low 20s points per game, then it's usually not going to... Um, equalize and Noah's a solid defender. Rich, maybe not as much. He's a, he's a very smart player, but he's also very undersized and he can get he can get blown by. Um, but it's not just Rich. I don't want to just single out Rich. This whole entire defense isn't isn't good. And <laughs> I think the only way this team could really put together games is if they shoot, they take what they have and run with it. They shoot threes, and then they shoot more threes, and then they're like, oh, let's shoot more threes. And McCall talks about driving and having that balance, and it it works a little, but most of the time they just can't do it. And they have to rely on shooting threes, but they also try to go with this weird thing where they still try to drive, um, and it doesn't work. So I've, I feel like there should just be times where they just buy into the fact that they are a shooting team, and just shoot the ball. 
And you know, McCall, if I said that's this to McCall, he'd probably be like, You're you're an idiot. But why not try to be an idiot if you know nothing else is going to work? They are going to win maximum one game in the Atlantic Ten tournament unless something drastic changes. I don't understand why you wouldn't have Rich Kelly taking 10 threes a game. There's only so much he can do on defense with the personnel he has. But the best way to negate it is by scoring even more. And I know I know that's a lot easier said than done. And it really relies upon the way that Noah is able to play. Noah has still been impactful. He's still a great player, even if he can't shoot well. But he is that much better when he can shoot well. That's that's basically all I got for men's basketball and the podcast in general. We'll have another one later this week, a little little different than our normal talk about each sport and whatever. We'll uh, we'll probably have all the editors on, which should be interesting, um, just to try something new. But I hope you enjoyed this one for the time being. To anyone who made it this far, I love you, as does the rest of the Collegian. But we'll catch you on Friday, where we'll have a little bit more of an abstract sort of piece, looking at some bigger picture questions and more fun, just kind of free-flowing kind of conversations. So, stay tuned. (laughs)